All right, so welcome everyone here uh, to the Ex Umbris podcast. Uh, myself, Scott McClarney, and Schoolman Fawcett. Schoolman, both in the sense that I am a teacher. It's an old-fashioned word for teacher, and that I am a wannabe scholastic philosopher. And this is the Exumbers podcast, classical Catholic education and podcast form. We are headmaster, teacher, and a supporting teacher at Chesterton Academy of St. Isidore Learning Center, the world's first and, to date only, completely online Chesterton Academy. And uh, this is an example of the kind of lesson you might get if you or your child enroll in our program. So... We spoke before about uh, classical education, ways to read movies, yes. literature, art, pop music. Uh, let's let's uh, delve in. Those were those were wide ranging. We did a bunch of different examples before. Yeah, and looking at Bourne uh, series yeah, as well. That's right. We I mean we, we ended up honing in on the Bourne movies and on uh, Taylor Swift music. Uh, but today we're going to devote again. This is also a student request, but we're going to devote the whole episode to one particular saga, uh, popular modern. Uh, literary and cinematic myth uh, that is the Hunger Games and the reason why this was requested is because Dr. McClarney just so happens to have literally written the book on this topic you want to speak well are there is there more than one book on theology and the Hunger Games there's a little bit there's a little bit there's, I did look it up there's, there's, a, there's some books on philosophy in the Hunger Games yeah. but I couldn't find any others that were specifically theological analyses so. Of, uh, right. of of this of this trilogy. Well, it's not a trilogy anymore. It's a quadrilogy. We're going to deal with the trilogy. We'll deal with it. Yeah. <laughs> Again, there's there's such a thing as apocrypha. All right. Yes. Um, but so uh, I'm I'm the student on this one. I I saw the films and I read the first book. Yeah. Uh, and gosh, it's been. I was interested actually that the students recommended this or suggested this because it's been like a decade. Hey, eh? it's been right. it's been a little yeah. bit. And uh, you know, we were discussing earlier. It's cultural moment has probably passed. Although who knows? Sometimes these yeah. things come back. Right. Um, you know, like Star Wars, um, I sure. mean, Avatar, you know, they just have a new Avatar movie and that made a yeah. bunch of money. So who knows what will happen, right? Yes. Harry Potter, despite some controversy about the author, uh, they're continuing to produce stuff related to that. So, yeah. so who knows? So maybe we're, we're prescient and we're ahead of the, ahead of the curve. Right. Um, but so, but on this one, I'm going to defer to you because you are more of a scholar in the books. So fair enough, fair enough. And so there's lots that we could say. There, there's, mm-hmm. there's a whole bunch. And what I'm thinking is we'll, we'll delimit our discussion, particularly one angle I like to take on this is comparing Katniss to Esther. So, and so other way, also Esther, the female protagonist in the book of Esther. So, both the character Esther as well as the book of Esther Ooh, interesting. to okay. um, the Hunger Games and then Esther to the Katniss. All right, I can't wait to. I, I, I... Helpfully, you gave me some materials that you produced, and I looked over them, and uh, I was very intrigued by the Katniss um, Esther analogy. I can't wait to delve into that. But uh, yeah. again, you, you, this is your lesson, sir, so take the lead. Go ahead. Well, I guess there's a few things to begin with. First is a disclaimer. So at no point are we suggesting that The Hunger Games is an allegory. Oh. Okay, of, of of the Bible, so that needs to be repeating. That well, what, uh, we've mentioned this before, but mm-hmm. an allegory is what? Well, it's where one story masquerades mm-hmm. as another, essentially. Mm-hmm. So it's dressed up. Um, another story with you know character plot mm-hmm. and so on just change. Which doesn't necessarily mean we can't read it allegorically, right? It's one of those four senses of scripture. We can still put that lens over, but that doesn't mean that was authorial intent or or its primary meaning or anything like that. You know? Exactly. So mm-hmm. senses like uh, the Hunger Games is based on the book of Esther is not really one that should be uttered uh, <laughs> by someone who's trying to take something away from this talk. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Another thing might be just 
this seems like a very awkward and unlikely pairing, does it not? Mm-hmm. Esther and Katniss, or The Hunger Games and The Book of Esther. It calls to mind Tertullian's statement, uh, right? What does Jerusalem have to do with Athens? Right? But you Anyways, believe it because it's absurd. To propose that. Well, now, but Tertullian's answer is mm-hmm. little to none. Right? Course, so that's, yes, his, yes. that's his argument, mm-hmm. at least. Uh, and he's he's a rare he's an outlier on that issue. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, that was the first thing that came to mind when this idea was was uh, first came up was comparing. Esther to Katniss, I thought, wait a second, they have nothing to do with each other. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, But, I mean, can you think of any similarities? Well, it might be easier to think of differences. Uh, what would be some differences? Anything? Hmm. Differences. Just well, they're head. separated, but one of them is set in our past, one of them is the other one yeah, is set in our exactly. future. Exactly, yes, yes. Um, I mean, I, <laughs> well, see, every the thing is, every difference I can think of my mind is already suggesting a rebuttal to me. Oh, all actually. right, all right, okay. Uh, I guess, okay, well, we don't know if Esther, I don't know, was a archer. Okay, was a sure. Woman, I suppose. <laughs> that uh, is a difference, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, sometimes people will mention, well, at least a similarity, is they have two female protagonists who risk their lives for the betterment of their societies. True, true. And, I mean, that's laudable and noteworthy, but... To me, that doesn't seem to warrant any sustained mm-hmm. juxtaposition, uh, really. So, um, again, kind of let, reposing to Tillian's question is, what is ancient Persia to do with dystopian Panem? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, um, well, I think, and, and then the first thing I thought is, the, the similarities are very superficial, mm-hmm. which is what got me hooked. Uh, mm-hmm. Because, literally, um, it's uh, epidermal commonalities that, that, that we, we can see how, how they deal with them. I'll get to that in one second. But uh, I guess it's worth uh, mentioning for our um, listeners who maybe have just passing acquaintance with The Hunger Games, it's set in 600 years from now in, in dystopian North America. But the thought world in which it inhabits is as if the Judeo-Christian tradition didn't happen. It's as, yeah. Think of it this way. It's as if the Roman Empire was transplanted into futuristic... North America, where, um, and and so so that's, you have the technology and so on, but they don't have reference reference to uh, the Bible. Uh, So the characters who live in the capital all uh, have Roman names, whereas those are from the districts, the outlying areas, are uh, organic in names. So whether it's Peta or or Katniss or Gail, I mean, that they could be um, Hawthorne is his last name, mm-hmm. uh, right? So Hawthorne Berry, and, and so this is. Um, so it's as though the Pax Romana just continued. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. And, and so it is a fascinating thought experiment. There's there's not one Judeo-Christian name in there. Uh, there is actually well, there's there's one minor you can kind of echo like Maggie, is um, mm. from uh, from Margaret. But but other than that, there's not. Um, there's also no blasphemy. So in the entire series, uh, the original, there's not one utterance uh, of last It's radically agnostic. So it's fa- a fascinating world to um, a thought experiment. All right. Um, now, when we go back to oh, the superficial, this is the, the, the juxtaposition then. So that, that I mean, that would be another interesting commonality mm-hmm. and difference. Commonality, because whose name does not appear in the Book of Esther. Well, I'll, you know what? We'll get back to that at the end. I'll come mm-hmm. back. Maybe that'll be our last point. Okay. But, um, all right. So, talking about superficial differences, or, or similarities, rather. 
when Katniss is brought to the, the Hunger Games at the beginning, uh, her prep team mercilessly rips hair from her body. They thoroughly scrub her down and they apply all sorts of soap and makeup in order to prepare uh-huh. for the capital audience. Uh-huh. All right. And thankfully, she finds favor with Cinna, who helps her navigate the interactions of the so-called sophisticated society. Now, in Esther, we have this young girl in ancient uh-huh. Persia uh, who goes to Persia's equivalent of the remake center. That's what we call <laughs> the Hunger Games. Uh, and here, uh-huh. Esther undergoes extensive superficial treatment. Uh, you know, skin products, maybe they've come a long way over the millennia. Uh, but this is a full year process for Esther. Okay, so she gets six months with oil of, of myrrh, six months with perfumes and cosmetics, uh, and, and then she gets her own prep team, seven uh, servants. And in fact, she finds favor with Haggai. This is the king's eunuch, right, who helps her navigate palace life and uh, without which probably wouldn't be a book of Esther, mm. just as there wouldn't be a Katniss without Cinna. Mm-hmm. Now, is that enough to go on? Well, no, I don't think so. <laughs> okay, <laughs> at least, okay. at least, at least, if we're trying to uh, say one is an allegory of the other, which which no, we're actually doing. But I don't know that's that's one common knowledge. But I think if we start to dig, now we can we're gonna find some more. We're gonna mm-hmm. find some more. Now let's again we gotta step back and remind ourselves. There are two different texts, but if we're not trying to you know artificially jam one into a pigeonhole, then I think we're freer. We have more liberality in, in seeing how one can illuminate the other, right? Okay, so let's let's think now of another commonality. This would be setting. Now, at first glance, this might not seem like a natural point of juxtaposition because ancient Persia is a long way off from dystopian, futuristic North America. Uh, and in fact, Esther is set in uh, the capital, imperial, one of the imperial cities is Susa. Mm-hmm. That's what I said. One of the most ancient urban centers that we know of, some 5,000, uh, uh, sorry, 5,000 BC is when, um. when its roots go back to. Uh, all right, and so, okay, how does that connect then to, to the Hunger Games? Well, here's what, who do we find in Persia? Uh, a little bit before Esther's time, there's Darius. Yes. Now, there's Darius in Hunger Games as well. So Darius is a red-headed uh, Avox, uh, or, sorry, peacekeeper who's turned into an Avox by the capital. But I'm not talking about Darius the Great, uh, right? <laughs> whose resume, it boasts three and a half decades of, of, of being Emperor of Persia. He has this incredibly vast territory, uh, and history actually affixes this monkier to him uh, great. So, uh, no, not bad, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, and we know much about him from um, his victories and so on. One of the famous ones, uh, do you, I, maybe you don't teach uh, Greek history. You, you, you teach That's that. That's right, yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. But one he's famous for is... Um, well, it's a defeat, actually, uh, at least as far as the, uh, well, of course, it was a defeat, right, at the, the Battle of Marathon, right, at 490 BC. And so this is, like, unprecedented military outcome. It was totally not predicted uh, by the odds. It was against the odds. Uh, right. So in any case, um, what's interesting for Darius is we have this inscription of how he describes Susa, so his palace in Susa. And uh, what he tells us is that the timber for this palace was felled in Lebanon. Oh, sure. Okay. But also Yandahar, which is an area straddling uh, Pakistan and Afghanistan today. The gold came from Sardis and bacteria. Now, that, that's um, one is in Turkey and modern-day India. right? It's deep blue gems were from what's modern-day Uzbekistan. Silver and ebony were taken from Egypt as well as Ethiopia. The ornamentation from the walls uh, came from the Mediterranean coastal city of Ionia. 
Now that sounds impressive, does it? Are you impressed sure. already? I, I, yeah, I'm already sold on this okay. place. Well, it gets better. All right. Okay. So, <laughs> along with these riches, says Darius, this is the inscription. We have this. Uh, so too came human resources from Ionia and Sardis. Okay. They're stone cutters and woodworkers. From Egypt, he brought goldsmiths, uh, as well as carpenters and, and wall decorators. Mm-hmm. And Darius brickmakers were actually local. They're from Babylon. Okay. Oh, okay. All right. All right. So to set foot in Susa then is to encounter the great, a great power of the ancient world uh, and its triumph. Right? Uh, now, Esther is a generation after Darius, and, uh, but his, his description helps us picture the palace in which she finds herself. Uh, and, and again, the geographic reference is that Ep, uh, Susa, where the story takes place of Esther, is at the epicenter of this sprawling empire that crests from Ethiopia to Afghanistan, right? Uh, and, and, and throughout. So, throughout the world, uh, or that, that part of the world. Now, Darius um, also mentioning the peripheries of society, right? So, this is the capital. But that, that's what lends it some comparison to Panama, mm. where you have districts, which would be the Roman equivalent of dioceses, yeah, right? yeah. Um, and the capital there, which, which they're, they're around. Uh, and so we know in Panem, uh, Cadmus, she's from 12, which is one of the poorer ones. But we know that, uh, well, there they supply coal. In 11, it's agriculture. Uh, District 4 is fishing. District 3 is factories, and, and, and so on. Right? So Panem then again is, is fueled by these, these outlying areas to the heart of, of an empire. Now, um, here we can also note that these, there's, there aren't any indications that there's some reciprocal benefit to these areas uh, in, in Darius's time as well as within the capital. Uh, so um, now we don't know about ancient, uh, or sorry, or international affairs in, in um, the Hunger Games, but nonetheless, yeah, as far right, as yeah. we do know, for thousands of kilometers around, the capital dominates life, and there are no other, um, you know, these not, uh, they're totally unhindered by any political uh-huh. opposition. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. So the, the setting then has some interesting parallels. Uh-huh. Okay, here's another one. When it comes to also the setting, there's what we call disproportion when it comes to beauty, and, and this also strikes the outside observer. So, so there's disproportion. Um, an aesthetic uh, repulsion almost by an outside observer. Um, and it's at the extensive economic and political imbalance that, that's visible in the fabric of the society itself. So there's a certain, I don't know how you want to put this, but it's like there's this tangible look and feel. Something, there's an overabundance uh-huh. of, of what's going on here. So it might invoke awe, uh, but there's such disproportion that it repulses. Uh-huh. The outside observer. Okay, so, um, and it's, that's sort of like Darius, perhaps, laying it on a bit thick. Uh, you know. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll get you. We'll, we'll go. We'll look okay. at some more scenes from Esther here. But let's let's uh, think here of the Hunger Games, and then we'll come back to uh, uh, Esther. So, there's all sorts of great feasts and and uh, celebrations that happen in, in the capital. The, the Hunger Games is the title of the book, but it's also it's an event itself which is a time for, uh, it's a great occasion. And the, the luxury here seems a bit overwhelming. So here, I'm going to give you a bit of a quote. Uh, now, you let it sink in when I read it. It's, right. it's more than just two kids from the sticks 
uh, happening upon the capital right. for the first time. Right. I mean, there's that to it, but it, there, these are also two tributes. Right. We're going yes. to okay. die in gladiatorial combat okay. as they're entering the city. But this is this is it. I'm gonna uh, let, me, let me read the quotation here. And this is Katniss describing it. The train finally begins to slow, and suddenly bright light floods the compartment. We can't help it. Both Pete and I run to the window to see what uh, we've only seen on television. The capital, the ruling city of Panem. The cameras haven't lied about its grandeur. If anything, they have not quite captured the magnificence of the glistening buildings in the rainbow hues that tower into the air, the shiny cars that roll down the wide paved streets, the oddly dressed people with bizarre hair and painted faces who have never missed a meal. All the colors seem artificial. The pink's too deep. The green's too bright, the yellow's painful to the eyes. Like the flat, round discs of hard candy, we can never afford to buy the tiny sweet shop in District 12. Okay, now, uh, there's your quote. Now, notice how Katniss says, um, at the beginning, she says, we can't help it. Pete and I both run to the window. Okay. So there's, there's a certain allure, okay. right, uh, okay. when it comes to grandiose uh, places and people, like, I mean, I don't know. Do you think concentrated wealth isn't it? Uh, <laughs> it awes us, does it not? Sure, sure. Right. There's, it's the what would what would Marx call it? The allure of capital. Okay, there we go. Sure. Yeah. Is there is there a pun there? Perhaps I don't know. Uh, but, but the capital yeah. is so attractive because uh, of all the stuff you can buy. I don't know if that's yeah. uh, intentionally there or not. But sure, there is an allure to it, even though there's something repulsive about it. Paradoxically, isn't there? Yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. I think of in contemporary North America, like uh, Las Vegas, might be a good example. The buildings sure. are so magnificent mm-hmm. and opulent. There's this immense concentration of capital, and it's very minute, uh, you know, square uh, mm-hmm. space, sure. right? Uh, but it, so, so okay. Um, so it does, uh, I think, awe uh, observers. But here, what we see in, in Panem, uh, Katniss here, and Peter, the attraction simultaneously it reveals something is askew. So unlike the delightful fragrances of flowers, or the lure of bees, uh, butterflies, and other pollinators, uh, which she mentions, the so here, though, the colors, the styles, the architecture of the capital, they're misplaced. Uh-huh. Right? So staring from the window of this train that's entering the capital, Katniss encounters what is, it seems, forced. Uh-huh. Uh, it's overstepped, yeah, unbalanced. Yeah. It gleams, absolutely, but it lacks intrinsic beauty. So it may be grandiose, uh, a sight to behold, but it leaves us artificial and Weight wanting taste. It's it's kind of like the factory uh, uh, made rock candy mm, right, that yeah, she, she yeah, describes, yeah, yeah. right? Mm. So um, now that says outsiders. They do become insiders, and once initiated uh, into the ways of the capital or some of the ways of the capital, we actually what's notable in the in the series is we see this a revulsion. It augments rather than diminishes, which we might not expect. So there's a scene in in. Um, President Snow's mansion. This is in chapter six of Catching Fire. And we're told of these 40 foot ceilings. Uh, And up up on the ceiling, you can see the image of the sky. And how they have it set up, these musicians are floating. So they're playing as if they're on clouds. Mm. They're playing for the audience in this mansion. And it's a dance, it's a big banquet. Um, Now, let me quote here Katniss again in her uh, description of this this, uh, President Snow's mansion from the interior. 
Traditional dining tables have been replaced by innumerable stuffed sofas and chairs, some surrounding fireplaces, other beside fragrant flowers, uh, gardens or ponds filled with exotic fish. A large tiled area is in the center of the room, serves as everything from a dance floor to a stage, for the performers who come and go uh, to another spot to mingle with the flamboyantly dressed guests. But the real star of the evening is the food. Huh. <laughs> tables laden. Remember, this is the Hunger Games, right? Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> so, tables laden with delicacies line the walls, while roasted cows and pigs and goats turning, still turning on spits. Uh, mm. Delectable, right? Sure. Huge platters of fowl stuffed with savory fruits and nuts. Ocean creatures drizzle in sauces, is, uh, begging to be dipped in spicy concoctions. Countless cheeses, breads, vegetables, sweets, waterfalls of wine, and streams mm. of spirits that flicker with flames. Okay, so great that, relish in listing yeah, all of those. Right. Yes. <laughs> I mean, when we want to be at this this banquet, well, the irony behind the scene is that Katniss knows what it's like to starve, uh, but as she begins to indulge, which she does, in the delectables, she is not satiated. In fact, she's repulsed. Mm. Now, uh, they then they actually have this practice of vomiting. Up their food, oh. uh, the people in the capital, which uh, so they're consuming, uh, and then have to disgorge their their contents to of their stomach to to eat more. Now I don't know what do, what do you think about that practice? Like uh, that must well, be- so it's like institutionalized bulimia, basically. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Oh gosh. So it's like all they really get out of it is the is the taste, the satisfaction, but none of the. Any nutritive value out of it, <laughs> right? And then, exactly. So, because food is it was it's naturally good, mm-hmm. and and why so? Because it it's, gives us nutrition. Mm-hmm. But ejecting it from the stomach is at cross purposes with its design, mm-hmm. right? With its tilios. So, unless of course, food has become perverted, right? Mm-hmm. Not to serve as sustenance, but solely as indulgence, mm-hmm. right? So it's not sustenance, but indulgence. And an indulgence which transcends natural limits. Oh, right? yes. Yeah, yeah. So this display of luxury, much like the uh, ornamentation of the capital, is not a sign, uh, one would argue, of an advanced civilization, right? Rather, it offends to the point of being debased. And to newcomers, uh, our outsiders like Katniss and Peta, who are now entering the society, this is nothing short of obscene. In fact, and this this is very striking. Uh, it's worth noting that at this point, at that dance, this is when Peter and Candace first start speaking about rebellion, openly, mm-hmm. like they're whispering about it. But you can imagine they're under complete surveillance, this, mm-hmm. and everyone eyes are on them. And nonetheless, they're so repulsed they actually begin to start applying the overthrow mm-hmm. of the society. Um, and, and so, um, all right, that, that's their response. Let's think of Esther here. Let's, let's contrast back. Uh, well, here we also find great buildings and, and people. Now, exaggeration is a literary feature in, in, in the book, but uh, we do see in the opening lines of Esther this massive and continual uh, feast for the elites of, of society. And the royal guests of the king are treated to 
six months mm. of festivities mm-hmm. in the Acropolis, or the citadel, the city, right? The royal quarters of Susa, uh, right mm-hmm. now. So for all the glamour of life, uh, it's, it's the royal quarters. Uh, this would be like the equivalent of downtown in a city. Uh, this happens for six months, but the uh, culmination of the six months of partying uh, is, is met with the, the gates are open to everyone in Susa. So the protracted feasting ends with uh, Xerxes opening the gates to his courtyard, and for seven days the great and small alike could indulge. Now, adul- indulge me here for a second. Let me read to you some of uh, this from, from Esther. Uh, we hear this. There were white cotton curtains and blue hanging tied with cords of fine linen and purple uh, to silver rings and marble pillars. There were couches of gold and silver on a mosaic of of pavement of porphyry, a marble, mother of pearl, and colored stones. Drinks were served in golden goblets, goblets of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished in accordance with the bounty of the king. I wonder if some of these uh, cups might be from uh, from ancient Jerusalem. Yes, for but sure. in any case, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. we're told drinking was by the flagons, without restraint, for the king had given orders to all the officials of his palace to do as each one desired. All right, now just from that passage, <laughs> read it quickly. What strikes you? Oh uh, well, if you're at that party, what, what strikes you? Oh well, again, it's like it, well. <laughs> I have the same reaction, to be honest, whenever I go to any fancy uh, banquet, which is like, wow, all the food looks great, but I can physically only eat so much of this. So most of, like, I, I'm always the guy who loads up his, like, little plate that's, like, not even the width of your own palm. I kind of, like, load it up with everything so I don't go back for seconds, you know? Uh, but it's like, by the time I've enjoyed everything, I don't even get, like, I'm not even going to be, by the time I'm done this plate... I'm going to be exhausted. I'm going to need coffee to help me digest all of it, you know. So it just sounds overwhelming to me to even be in the presence of all that uh, luxury, you know. Yeah, and and the flagons of wine and all the rest, uh, which is there. And one thing that that stands out is the, uh, I mean, the gold, I mean, there's the gold goblets, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. uh, what would we, you know, where would it be if we just took one or two home as a souvenir? I don't know. What sure, do you, do you yeah, think, right? right, yeah. Uh, how, do you, how do you sneak that into your suitcase? Well, 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 in this continual stream of dissipation, uh, I mean, uh, I suppose, maybe yeah. people might not notice. And, it's true, yes. And there's a steady stream of prominent people through through uh, across the empire showing up as well. I mean, they wouldn't miss it, would they? I suppose not, I mean, yeah. okay. Um, but um, here again, when the gates of the Acropolis are cast open, we, we, too, can peer in. Just like, you know, like Katniss and Peter peer into the Capitol in first Well, so we, too, we're up against the window, right, taking it all in. The liberality of the illustrious uh, Xerxes, right, when he's dispensing upon his subjects here. Now, I, I very much appreciate your remark there about exhaustion, right? And I think that is, that is, in, that is uh, one of the reactions that Esther is giving us, the book of Esther. Uh, it's that we're inundated. Uh-huh. I, I mean, imagine this for, okay, one evening, right? This is six months. Yeah, well, uh, yeah. So this, this is this is uh, beyond the pain. And goodness, it sounds like boring after a while. Everyone's just uh-huh. drunk and lolling around uh-huh. on these mother. What was it a mother of pearl? Right. <laughs> <floors>. Yes. <laughs> yeah, gold and silver silver couches. Uh, and and um, as as the story of Esther continues, mm-hmm. this dissipation it leads to Xerxes making this 
utterly impulsive decision to uh, dismiss Queen Vashti, and then uh, it, it sets in motion the, the rest of the tale. So Susa then verges on the surreal, right? Mm. So just as remember the pink is too deep, right, or that the green uh, was too deep in the capital, so to the opulence uh-huh. of Susa is, is jarring. It captures the eye. But it not it doesn't have some innate aesthetic value. Uh-huh. Uh, rather, it's outlandish. Uh-huh. It's an outlandish display of wealth and power. Well, it's it's almost as if this is probably what happened. You, know, you get so much pleasure, you get bored of that after a while. You got to lay it on thicker and thicker and thicker, right? Yes. <laughs> to try to try to keep it, you know, amp it up over more and more because you know lesser pleasures just have lost their their taste for you, their savor for you. Yes, and it's also function. Right, and it's also a function of power. So the appetites, uh, uh, trying to satisfy appetites, but also the will, the power. Uh, and, and so this is a, a power, though, that isn't geared uh, towards the well-being of others, so much as it is in the pleasure uh, of that luxury affords, uh, right, displaying this. So I want to think of it another way. Sousa, as well as the capital, are absurd, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. They're arresting, but absurd. So they mm-hmm. force us then, as, as observers to reconsider beauty, mm. right? Uh, or how about this question? What is reflective of a magnificent society? Is it sheer luxury, all <laughs> right? Dazzling marble, towering buildings, raucous festivities? Uh, another way to think of it is like this. If we control enough resources, natural resources, as well as human capital. Mm-hmm. We funnel it all into one place, right? You and I, we could do this. Okay. Sure, uh, sure. What could, what, what, does that make it a truly great society? Ooh. Well, I suspect no. I suspect okay. probably that ends up uh, not working out. In fact, I was even thinking at, at earlier when you were drawing the analogy between Persia and uh, Panem, they're yes. both also heirs to another world that thought it was great right oh. i mean panem is is our world presumably it's falling yes. apart we thought we were you know had stuff together we had hoarded all this power and we had produced all this extravagance and we're gone and they've replaced us and that's also yeah. persia right it's it succeeded uh. babylon like babylon did the same thing and they yes. had great extravagant parties in fact it's the empire ends in the middle of one of them right <laughs> yes. and that's exactly yes. when persia takes over um, but it seems that rather than learn that lesson, it's like, well, we're not going to be like Babylon. We're going to be even bigger. Right? We're going to have to even them. Yes. yes. Yeah. Uh, even though the reason they collapsed is because their king was drunk at a party one night and not on his game. Yeah. <laughs> we're right. we're going to do similar things than that. Uh, just like Panem has not learned from, presumably, we collapsed for similar mistakes. But Panem hasn't learned from that. They still think greatness consists in extravagance and consumption. And, right. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. yeah. And so, and I mean, another strategy, a part of it, the, the circus in Panem is, is uh, you know, we can appease the whole town. Uh, we can a wave, mm-hmm. uh, if we have wave after wave of fresh wine and luxuriant foods, uh, maybe this, right? Uh, okay, so again, we want to ask ourselves this question. What makes a city magnificent? Mm-hmm. What's it designed to do? And... In this case, uh, the case of Sousa as well as the capital, what's missing? All right. So I think when you contrast the text, it helps us at least think of these questions. If not, um, 
move towards an answer. Okay. Not giving any answers away yet. Let's 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 move on to our next juxtaposition, and this is the a fascinating one. It's between the uh, pro, the mentors, the protagonists. Mm -hmm. So there's Mordecai and then Hamish. So Mordecai and Hamish, um, these these mentors, and they have some notable commonalities when we start looking at them in terms of how they first of all stand as intermediaries for their proteges. Now they both know the world. Uh, in which their proteges come from. Mm, right, 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 yeah. And, and also have been long immersed in the upper echelons of the prevailing society. Mm -hmm. So uh, another similarity between them, they both intervene at crucial uh, junctures, either to assist mm -hmm. or to guide their proteges. So Hamish, on, on various occasions, uh, he's not just arranging these invaluable parachute gifts you know, into the arena, mm -hmm. but crucially, he's coaching Katniss on how to behave and perform post games, and also he maintains a close eye on her when she's in D District Thirteen. Now, Mordecai, he arranges for Esther to enter into a competition. This is a competition for the crown, and he assists her also from a distance in the process, and crucially, uh, guides her to save their people mm -hmm. from from massacre. Uh, yet, <laughs> the manner in which these two, I think, are most reflective, uh, and this is what I would argue, is the questionable, if not morally ambiguous, mm. decisions they make given their fiduciary duties towards their protégés. So let's first maybe uh, consider Mordecai, the contradictions in his life, and I think they provide us a lens then by which we can consider Hamish and his actions a little further. So, the biblical text introduces Mordecai as the following. I quote here. A Jew in Susa's Acropolis, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jer, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjaminite who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, uh, away with Jacona, king of uh, Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. All right. <laughs> so that's how he's introduced. It's a long sentence. But the Hebrew text places his ethnic identity in the emphatic position. So th this is, uh, he's first identified as a Jew. Jewish identity, however, is tied to what? Well, it's a place all as well. The land of Judah or Israel. Um, and so for the original readers of Esther, that, that, you know, that would not be lost on them, that Mordecai is actually living 1,200 kilometers away from uh, the land of Judah. So Mordecai is a Jew, but he's one who chooses Susa over Israel. Mm. All right. Now, now a bit of the background. Yes, they were in captivity, sure. but they had been given occasion to to leave. He doesn't. He sticks around. Mm -hmm. uh, so, other contradictions seem to be evident. Uh, well, think about his name, for instance. Mm -hmm. What does it remind you? Yeah. Of? Well, it's Marduk. Yeah, the god. Yeah. Yeah. Now, uh, of course, contemporary readers associate Mordecai with a Jewish name because of Mordecai, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but the, what's important to keep in mind is the original readers of the Book of Esther would know that his name relates to the Babylonian deity. It, mm -hmm. it can mean um, man of Marduk or perhaps worshiper of Marduk, but either way, it's, yeah. it's very clear. Mm -hmm. This is his name. So he's, put it, put it this way, he's not an imposter in Susa. He's, mm -hmm. he's not a foreigner. It seems that his home... Uh, is there, and it, it makes us wonder, is his heart also rooted in Susa? 
uh, now, the ambiguity surrounding Mordecai, it actually thickens when we consider him in light of the eponymous hero of the story. So Esther, by contrast, is identified as, uh, by her Hebrew name, Hadassah, which, which uh, doesn't happen for Mordecai. There's no alternative yeah, Jewish say, name yeah. uh, for him. Uh, so we're told, though, that he does take care of Esther following the death of her mother and father. Uh-huh. Uh, and the verb in Hebrew, he literally took her. Um, it, it, uh, this demonstrates a desire to guide, protect, and nourish the next generation of, of, of Jews living in a foreign land. Um, now, that might seem like a, a natural thing to do because they're also related. Uh, but also, even if they weren't related, this is an injunction in the Torah. So uh, yeah. Exodus 22, 21, 22 says um, to care for the widow, uh, the orphan, and the alien, or the stranger, the foreigner, uh-huh. right? And, and Esther is an orphan, right, uh-huh. in a strange land. So this is also following the, the Torah to, do, to, do, to take care of her, right? Now, we might expect, since this is a biblical story, the next, very next step Mordecai is going to take is to arrange for safe passage for Esther back to yeah, the homeland, yeah. right? Um, but within a few words, of, of verses of his introduction, Mordecai seals Esther's fate in Susa, effectively cutting off any hope of ever leaving Persia by entering her into this contest for the crown. Uh-huh. Now, do we just write Mordecai off? Um, the biblical text actually gives us room for pause. There are other ways of looking at Mordecai. Uh, now, okay, there are some other difficulties here with Mordecai. <laughs> <laughs> the Mosaic law, I mean, he's following it, sort of. It also, though, it does prohibit um, intermarrying with foreigners. So, and that's actually the best possible outcome of the competition. Yeah, uh, yeah. Now, if she fails, though... Um, she's just another name in the harem, Saul's crown. Okay, mm-hmm. so so worse, this could be seen as an attempt to curry favor yeah. with the royal court at the expense of a liber- the liberty of a dependent. Well, so, I, or or even prostituting your adoptive daughter, arguably. Which okay, yeah. So temporary gain and advancement seems to come at the price of the permanent confinement of another. Yeah, exactly. In yeah. this in this light, right? Uh, so. Question marks are raised, and there's very large ones that loom over the head of Mordecai. Now, the biblical text, though, is fascinating. Right? It, 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 it allows us to also give him benefit of the doubt, and it doesn't actually give us insight into the psychology of its characters. Uh-huh. So like, let me explain here. So it allows us to, uh, uh, you know, if we're going to give him the benefit of the doubt, we could say, well, maybe Mordecai experienced a vision. Right? Maybe he's been prompted by heaven to take a leap of faith. Mm-hmm. But again, the text doesn't give us the insight into his yeah. psychology, uh, the, the Hebrew one at least, the Hebrew version of Esther. Uh, and here, all we're told is what a casual observer of Susa would note. So mm-hmm. as if we are standing in Susa, we'd know this. It tells us this. Every day, Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and how she fared. All right. So this daily pilgrimage, right, uh, indicates that Mordecai, well, what? He hasn't ad- abandoned his adoptive daughter. 
right? Um, and he has instructed her to keep her Jewish identity uh, concealed. Okay. Uh, so uh, his concerns, though, and uh, connection to Esther is public knowledge because he does this every day, right? And these walks, though, I think would also, I have to guess, or I have to assume this, it gives him ample room for considering uh, second thoughts. And perhaps, in his mind's eye, he's considering, I'm thinking of Abraham's uh, journey to Moriah, right? This three-day journey where he's asked to offer up his only beloved son. He's hoping against hope to have him back. And so uh, I'm, I'm sure that uh, surely some of this would come to Mordecai's mind during these daily pilgrimages uh, outside of, of, of the harem. Now, there are other redeeming features of Mordecai. He displays courage, decisiveness, inventiveness, and traces of the heroic as well. Uh, you probably recall uh, his refusal to bow yes, the knee before Haman, yes. uh, the king's right-hand man. Uh, now, technically... This wasn't against the Jewish law. Uh, we, we see some other places where uh, mm-hmm. Jews can, you know, bow down before kings or show show respect. But you know, this is where Mordecai takes a stand, <laughs> sure. and, and perhaps it could be nationalistic or ethnic pride. Um, but in any case, uh, Mordecai he couldn't have foreknown the outcome, mm-hmm. uh, right? That Haman, whom he refuses to bow before, would devise his pogrom against the Jews. Uh, in, in Persia, in, in the, the known world, right? So, upon hearing news, though, of this heinous plot, well, what does Mordecai do? Well, he remains decisive and incredibly prudent. Uh, he's, he's not passive, neither is he craven, but he stays in Susa, right? Mm-hmm. Re- and he rends his clothing, he adorns sackcloth, he smears his visage with ash, he skillfully navigates protest. Right? Uh-huh. So he doesn't uh-huh. transgress public law. But he's also getting Esther's attention and informing her that decisive action needs to be taken. All right. So that's a bit of background on Mordecai. With that fleshed out, let's think back now to Hamish. So Hamish, this he despises easy characterization. Yeah, he, this the drunken haze in which he lives. It, it masks pain from the past, but he also has grit mm-hmm. and quick wittedness. Uh, this keen insight and intensity. Uh, so to picture him, in, in other words, as this overweight, cynical but mm-hmm. subdued. Uh, tipsy would-be uncle of Katniss. It's it's not quite adequate for who Hamish is. But <laughs> do some of the question marks surrounding Mordecai also hover uh, above Hamish? And uh, I'm going to say, let's start with considering their fiduciary duty. So, how seriously does Hamish take this? Uh, I mean, at the uh, when, on their journey on that train, he he does he doesn't offer. Peter and Katniss uh, much of a chance when they first meet. And he essentially, he, just, he writes them off. Now, sure, he, he, he takes them under his wing once they show promise uh-huh. again, but this could simply be a defense mechanism. Don't get attached to someone. Inevitably, they're going to die, uh-huh. right? In coming days, <laughs> all right? Since the outcome has actually been the same, year after year for the past two and a half decades for Hamish. But, all right, 
This also raises the possibility he will only become attached to someone who will help him out in turn. Mm. Right? So, does he eventually invest in these District 12 tributes because they're going to help his stature, his standing in the society, as well as his own being? Because, um, you know, they might not let him down by becoming victims in the arena. You know, maybe he can invest in them now. Okay? Now, I don't know about you. I, I, I don't, I'm, that could be the case. I don't think it is. But, but the possibility is, is at least there. Okay? Now, here's another one. He's obviously the mentor to Katniss, but he's also the mentor of Peta. And he, but however, he clearly favors Katniss. Yes. Okay? And, and Peta actually picks up on this early on. And his exasperation emerges at the fact that he never received gifts while Katniss did. And that, that confirms as much, right? And now, Hamish could respond. Okay. I, I'm just playing the odds. Right, right? sure, sure. Uh, since uh, she's favored by far. So, um, but does that relinquish him from looking out for Peter? Mm. Uh, again, is he uh, just out of hand rejecting someone who can't survive? Mm. I'm going to reject helping him, mm. right? Um, or maybe I'm going to reject him because he lacks the cunning, the conviction right. yeah. to outsmart others. Okay. Question to think about. But that's not Hamish's biggest deficit. <laughs> okay, his greatest shortcoming, I would argue, is keeping Katniss in the dark about too many things. Because uh, this leads to the impression that she's actually being manipulated. Right? As opposed to being trusted. Yeah. Or even given a, the choice. Right. Or, yeah, yeah. or a say in the matter. Right? So let's, let's consider here... The, their plan to break out of the second game. So not the first, but the second games. Now, okay, here. Um, Hamish is directly involved in the plot. He clearly lets other tributes in on this, but not Katniss. Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay, now Plutarch, while he's game master, he actually gives Katniss more information through this cryptic message about his watch striking midnight. This is back at the dance in Snow's mansion. He actually mentions it. Katniss doesn't quite know what he's talking about, but it's, it is an important clue later on in the second arena. Um, in any case, um, for all the insight that Hamish has into Katniss's character, you would assume, surely, there's some way that he can give some clues, some forewarning, some better preparation, like, you know, the Watcher of Midnight or whatever. Yeah, like, yeah, he could have yeah. done something. But he chooses not to, right? Despite telling other tributes, indicating, you know, he clearly has the means to do so. He could have communicated yes. this with Esther, or sorry, Katniss, but he doesn't. Now, let's consider the hovercraft conversation where this all comes to the fore. Now, I'm going to read this section here. It's one of the more vivid in the entire book, There's a, and certainly perhaps the most telling interaction between the two of them. And, and here, this is the scene, just to set it. Imagine your kid, Katniss, okay? So you've just been broken out of the, of, of the arena. Um, you're in a hovercraft, and Plutarch is all of a sudden there explaining what just happened. Okay, he go, this is Plutarch speaking now. We had to save you because you're the Mockingjay, Katniss, says Plutarch. While you live, the revolution lives. Mm. Okay. Continues on. The bird, the pin, the song, the berries, the watch, the cracker, the dress that bursts into flames. I am the mocking jay, the one that survived despite the capital's plans, the symbol of the rebellion. 
It's what I suspected in the woods when I found Bonnie and Twill escaping, though I never really understood the magnitude. But then, I wasn't meant to understand. Uh. I think of Hamish's sneering at my plans to flee District 12, start my own uprising, even the very notion of that District 13 could exist. Subterfuges and deceptions. And if he could do that, behind his sarcasm, his mask of sarcasm and drunkenness, so convincingly and for so long, what else has he lied about? I know what else. Yeah. And, and here, just pause for a second. Katniss has correctly guessed what the else is. It's PETA. So Hamish has failed to volunteer information that PETA has been captured. So Katniss, again, yeah. being favored here, uh, is, is, yes. is evacuated, but PETA's not. Okay, now, quoting the text again. Where's PETA? I hiss at him. He was picked up by the capital, along with Joanna and Nobria, says Hamish, and he finally has the decency to drop his gaze. <laughs> Technically, I am unarmed, but no one should underestimate the harm that fingernails can do, especially if the target is unprepared. <laughs> I lunge across the table and rake mine uh, down Hamish's face, causing blood to flow and damage to one eye. Then we're both screaming terrible, terrible things at each other, and Finnick is trying to drag me out, and all I know is Hamish can do... It's, and I know it's all Hamish can do not to rip me apart, but I'm the Mockingjay. <laughs> okay, so this vicious and brutal rage that erupts within Katniss, which I, I, I don't actually recall if she ever expresses regret over yeah, the, sure, doing sure. so. <laughs> <laughs> this leaves raw scars over Hamish's visage. And, and you know, perhaps District 13 has good cosmetic <laughs> surgeons uh, I, I don't know but right. but the wounds are dealt because Katniss senses rightly I would say uh -huh. how Hamish has been manipulating her right so despite their ability to understand each other and guess each other's motives he didn't even let her in on this uh -huh. now okay Hamish certainly has some reasons to be guarded not to you know divulge information uh, because if he did precisely like so that she doesn't know, then it can't be used against her, right? Uh -huh. Okay, or you know, or can't lead her into problems. Uh, so perhaps you can use this as you know, it's for your own good, right? Your uh -huh. own protection. But on the other hand, leaving her in the dark allows her to be more easily manipulated, to have control over, to have power over, right? Which are precisely the goals of District Thirteen. To gain control, this is after the, uh, the second games, right? But, uh -huh. So after she broke up, they, they want to gain control over Katniss, or really her alter ego, the Mockingjay. Yeah. And, um, and then they want to control the capital. So the question is raised, does Hamish operate primarily for Katniss's benefit, as a mentor should, or is he really trying to uh, control a manipulator? Yes, okay, okay, the cause uh, is paramount. The success of the cause is, is most important. But could he not have extended trust to her? At least some trust, a modicum, right? Uh, some crucial information, right? Would this have been, ah, maybe it would have given her a genuine leadership role. Mm. Mm, right? What if she even became a decision maker yeah. in what was happening? Now, perhaps Hamish, and not just Hamish, but others like Plutarch and Coyne, especially coin, 
Uh, they don't want more leaders at the table. Maybe more pawns, though. Now, I'll let you think about that uh, further. Uh, now, we should probably come close to wrapping this up, but one other um, uh, connection we can think of between the two, Esther and Candace, is a life of exile. Yes. Right? So um, Esther is uh, part of the diaspora. Right? Uh, the community of Jews who are forcibly dislodged from their homeland and sent into exile in Babylon. So Esther, we can say, is born in exile. Susa isn't her true home. Katniss, likewise, is born in District 12. We don't know much about her ancestry, but it's a life of forcible confinement, right? A fate which previous generations have experienced, into which she's born, and as noted, uh, the seam, uh, well, the seam is the, uh, the place of the town of the Victor's Village. Uh, it's not her true home. She ends up moving there later. Um, and she doesn't feel at home there. She's not at ease. She's, she's, she's at home. Where is she at home? Beneath a canopy of trees, uh, <laughs> right, with a bow slung over her shoulder, <laughs> right. Uh, so, Esther and Candace are both born into generational exile, and they experience a second exile. So remember, uh, noted the, the verb there as um, Esther's taken into care by Mordecai. The same verb is used again. She's taken into the king's palace, mm. and um, so she passes under the to the tutelage of Haggai the eunuch who keeps charge of the king's women uh, and Esther in the flower of her youth will know exile right? um, and, and, and the verb to uh, take charge and it, it's uh, take there it also harkens back to the Garden of Eden oh, sure, uh, right, yeah. right, where Adam is t- takes charge or he's, of, of, of tilling the land yeah. uh, so um, and then also that's, that's pre-lapsarian but also after the fall he's then in task with the responsibility of, of, of taking charge of uh, uh, tilling the land after. So from the very outset, um, Esther lives in this emblematic manner, uh, or at least it's emblematic of biblical experience of the exile, right? So life in Susa has become exile, made new, albeit without a chance of return, much like Adam and Eve, yes. right? Uh-huh. So, um, okay. Uh, now Katniss, likewise, once selected to go to the games, she can't return to her community, at least she can physically go back, but then she must live in the victor's village. Right? She can't, though, resume her old relationships. Uh, she tries to go back to her old routines, but there's none for her to return to. There's no resumption of her old life. Uh, and there's this, <laughs> this great scene where, where Candace rouses Hamish with his bucket of cold water. He's in a bit of a haze. Uh, and she knows that... Um, they, they got to go back again to uh, uh, prepare for the uh, sorry, capital audience is, is coming. Mm-hmm. She needs his attention. Uh, and uh, it, this, Hamish, who, who um, is roused by the cold water, uh, reels with his knife. He's wielding a knife <laughs> as he, he, he becomes alert. Uh, and you're just quoting, it says, Just the sound of his voice twists my stomach into a knot of unpleasant emotions, like guilt, sadness, and fear and longing. I might as... Uh, I might, as well, I might as admit that there's some of that too, only, has, only it has too much comp- uh, competition to ever win out. So, in other words, Katniss is longing for something more to get out, we could argue, out of her exile. So, um, that, that is an experience which she uh, undergoes when, when she returns to um, her land. Um, okay, I guess um, one last thing to think about is... Where is God in all of this? Uh-huh. Right? Uh-huh. 
The Hunger Games is, is fascinating because, as, as noted, uh, there's no reference to the divine. Mm -hmm. there, there is one subtle reference to them hunting on a Sunday, which is perhaps yeah. some tangential mm -hmm. reference to a Sabbath day. But other than hunting on Sunday, um, there, there, there's, there's really none in the original series. Uh, and, and so it's not obvious. Uh, and in fact, we might say that it's, we're just left with the odds, right? The roll of the dice, okay. which, interesting enough, is a phenomenon in Esther as well, Purim, uh, mm -hmm. right, to roll the dice. Um, yeah. and, and so can we say, the, or how do we see the providence of God acting? Uh, so here, perhaps, uh, the lot being drawn, that, that might be the most obvious, uh, for Prim, uh, this is Canis who steps up to her assistance, mm -hmm. okay? Um, out of all the boys who could be selected to the games, well, none other than the self-effacing, devoted PETA, <laughs> right? The boy who happens to secretly be loving with Katniss sure, happens sure. to be selected. Yes. I mean, uh -huh. is that Providence? Um, uh -huh. Perhaps uh, it, it, there's a scene where she tosses cookies out of the train. This is cookies that PETA's dad has given her because uh, she doesn't want any attachment to PETA. It lands on dandelions. Uh, and and this, this is also providential because dandelions were the food that nourished her and it, it connects back to yeah. the, the natural goodness of the earth, uh, which his father is not trying to curry favor with her so much as being naturally good sure, to yeah, her, right? Yeah. Um, there's this chance meeting with Bonnie and Twill, escapees from District 8, uh, not to mention innumerable well-placed arrows of Candace. Okay, so, so and so on yes, and so on. Yeah. Can we not argue that provinces work? Well, Collins doesn't want us to. Uh, at least uh, the way that the, the, there aren't any clear windows, let's put it that way, uh, to the transcendent in the work. Death seems to be the end of life. However, there is an epilogue scene of the meadows that could be read metaphorically uh, that can point towards the divine. But at best, Collins wants to leave us agnostic mm -hmm. about providence in, in pattern or, or the divine. Mm -hmm. What do we think? What about Esther? How how's that? How, they were, they were, what, does that leave us agnostic? I mean, we mentioned whose name is not whose name is not mentioned. In God, God's name is not really mentioned in Esther. That's right. There's there, uh, well, the Septuagint, as, the Septuagint uh, yeah. like a prayer of hers and everything like that. Yeah. But there's a, I think Mordecai suggests to her though that perhaps you're you've been placed here for such a time as this, right? Yes. So there's a, there's the providence. They're lurking behind the darkened window, if you is yes. easier terminology. Yeah. But he also suggests to her fasting. Fasting is right. So so fasting, which kind of a religious thing to do. Obviously, yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. Um Yeah, okay, but really it, it's as if God is in the background. Um and, and, and so here, um but providence is everywhere at the same time, mm -hmm. right? This, mm -hmm. this is then, uh, you've been called to such a time as this. Uh, this, is, this is the most important moment of their lives, right? Mm -hmm. is, is, this, is this place here. So um, what it suggests then, I think at least, how I read mm -hmm. this, is that God is able to redeem humanity from our worst predicaments. Mm -hmm. Even a quasi-practicing, you know, believer, yeah, right? right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, half, half, whose heart is half at home. And Sousa, right? Mm -hmm. God can still work uh, through through Him, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, and yeah, if we find ourselves in a dystopian reality, God can still work uh, there as well. Yeah. So um, 
well, we have obviously by its very inclusion in the canon, uh, the Holy Spirit is telling us, yes, there's something in this book yeah. of, of Esther for us. Well, the, my thought there, my final thought is uh, Esther is incomplete, right? Like it, it's part of a bigger story. Absolutely. And you need to read other stuff to kind of make sense of why it's important. I mean, it's important. It's a self-contained important story because it's the, uh, you know, the people of God are saved. Yeah. The people of Israel are saved. Uh, and Purim, you know, is instituted as a holiday to commemorate that. And that's, you know, a self-contained important story in itself. Yeah. With some moral lessons too about trusting in God and all this, um, but ultimately, it's got a, it's really just a chapter in a much bigger story, right? Yeah. Because Nehemiah, when yeah. he goes to the king and says, Could, "Would you kindly please let me go home and rebuild Jerusalem?" There's this detail there, and the queen was with the king, and the king says, "Yes, of course, Nehemiah, go back and do it." What? Could that could that be Esther? Right. Maybe is that the reason why the king is well disposed towards letting Nehemiah go back? Is if it is, if that's the clue that that the Holy Spirit has placed there, that yes, because Esther was standing next to King Xerxes, that's why he was well disposed towards letting this Jewish person go home and rebuilding his city. Well, then ultimately the Book of Esther tells us why the Jews returned to Jerusalem, why they rebuilt it, why they rebuilt the temple, why it was there for Jesus to come to and be crucified right. in. Yes. So it's a very important chapter in a much bigger story that, uh, that, that culminates much later, let's say. And I feel like that's the case with The Hunger Games, too. It's just that, that later chapter we don't have, right? Yes. Um, yes. Because at the end of the trilogy, we see awful uh, imperial tyranny is bad, but also the zealots, right? The, yes. the, the revolutionaries, right? Yeah. Um, you know, Christ had those in his day, and maybe yes. they wanted to co-opt him, but he wouldn't play along with that either. That doesn't work either. It's, you know, meet the new boss, same as the old boss, yes. right? You know, snow and coin are two sides of the same coin. Oh, very good, right? very good, um, yes. uh, And then there's not really a resolution to that, except, except in the fact that she finds love. She ends up marrying uh, PETA and having children, but there's no yeah. political solution. Um, yeah. In some sense, right? Yeah. I, I, yeah. I find it left. It's, I think you're supposed to be left a bit unsatisfied by this. Yeah, there, there. We, we will have to say this for another day. Sure. Okay. There, fair there enough. is this. There is. Um, it's a very. Uh, I think a very deliberate solution it has to do with parchment, but we 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 have to get into a ritual sacrifice theory. Um, and all the rest, yes. uh, as Gerardian framework. Right, right. We have but to discuss we'll, we'll Gerard say, and stuff. We'll, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll set that, that we'll aside. But let's yeah. say that's not necessarily sure, sure, obvious. Sure. Let's say, yeah. um, except, at, but that she finds um, self gift and love and childbearing, right? In some sense, right? right? There's that quality to it. So, I think there's an open endedness to this. Yeah. That the ultimate answer would be found in the in the sacrifice that is Christ. Um, right? uh, just like the story of Esther only finds its meaning ultimately in Christ. Uh, which is why it's part of a canon. Uh, Hunger Games doesn't have this, at least not yet. Maybe one day Suzanne Collins will write the sequel where everyone finds Jesus. But we, as the classical educators and classically educated, which as we pointed out, you know, there's a, there's classical education in the back of this book. I mean, they recognize all these these names uh, and these illusions. Yes. You sort of need that. So in one sense, I would say it is part of the canon. It's part of the canon of classical education. If you read it with reference to the ancients, with reference to scripture, then its meaning has been un unraveled, uh, as you just did for us, actually. As you've just unraveled what that meaning yeah. is in a lot of ways. So that'd be my final thought for now, though I have other thoughts we'll have to discuss sure. off-camera or sure. maybe in a yeah. future episode. Yeah. But yeah. 
All right, well, that's all I've got for today. Would you like to close in prayer, Dr. McClarney? Oh, let us. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, you sent your word into this world to bring us new life. We thank you for this great privilege to know you and to love you, to serve you. We pray for your every blessing upon us. May we come to a deep understanding of your mission for us in this world amidst all the tumult and confusion uh, that we find amidst us. Uh, we pray, Lord, that we may be attentive to your call. Uh, may we help us to live out our vocations and in so give glory to your name. And for we pray, glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. As it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Amen. In the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.